This morning, our scripture verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It can be found on page 816 of your pew Bible. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. really appreciate the music this morning, not just because of its beauty, but because of how everything really does point to what we're talking about this morning. Again, this being Labor Day, we thought we would talk about how we need to remind ourselves and how God's Word reminds us that we should never sense that our labors here on earth are in vain. Back in 1925, the great American playwright Eugene O'Neill wrote a very creative, very imaginative play called Lazarus Laughed. And it was about what took place after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And early on in the play, they're throwing a big banquet for Lazarus post-resurrection, post having been brought back to life by Jesus. And they're all sitting around and they're just dying to hear what Lazarus has to say. But he hasn't said anything yet. But they all have different comments. One of the guests at this banquet says, the whole look of his face has changed. He's like a stranger from a far land. There is no longer any sorrow in his eyes. He must have forgotten about sorrow in the grave. And others began to talk about, began to comment on how bold he seemed, how happy he seemed, how confident he was. And I imagine that's probably what Lazarus was like when he was brought back to life. Now, yes, inevitably, he died again. We all do. And yet, I, I would love to know what his life was like after Jesus brought him back to life. Have you ever thought about that? And I am sure in my mind that he was emboldened and very confident and very joyful and very hopeful about the future, in fact, certain about his future once he were to die again. He was quite convinced that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, just as Jesus tried to convince Martha just before he brought Lazarus back. Well, here's my question for you and me this morning. What about you and me? You know, are you and I that emboldened? Are we that confident? Are we that joyful, that confident that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life? And because of that, what we do down here for the kingdom is never done in vain, that it counts and that we've got to make it count. You know, we have been resurrected. You know, do you and I live as risen Lazaruses, knowing where we are headed? And because of that, we can joyfully and confidently pursue all of our goals out there missionally. We've been resurrected spiritually, and one day we will be resurrected physically. So Paul concludes this great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, with a challenge and a promise. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 58 again. And and I'm doing this this morning in the NIV just because it's more old school when it talks about our labors. So I decided to do that this morning. Paul says to them, and this is at the very end of um, his, uh, I would call it a sermon of sorts, really. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not 
in vain. Now, if you take into account the entire chapter of chapter 15, along with this verse, you really do find three aspects of our lives as kingdom followers of Jesus that are not in vain. And so we're going to address each of those. And you can look at your handout if you like with the outline or it's up here on the screen as well. First of all, what is the first thing that is not in vain for us? It's our faith in the resurrection. Our faith in the resurrection is not in vain. Like I said, 1 Corinthians 15 really is a wonderful brief sermon of sorts on the resurrection has a good introduction and a good conclusion. Reminds me of uh, Dr. Norman Wiggins, who, when I was teaching at Campbell University, was our wonderful president there, uh, had been uh, chair of Lifeway, had been uh, the state convention president, wonderful guy, good speaker. And, and once or twice he was asked, what is it that makes a really good speech, Dr. Wiggins? And he said, you get a, a really good introduction and you fine-tune that introduction you get a really good conclusion, fine-tune that, and you put them as close together as you can. He said, that makes for a good speech. Well, there's really a good introduction and a good conclusion for this wonderful sermonette, I would say, on the resurrection. Let, let's go back to the introduction in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. He begins this way, and notice that the phrase in vain is here, too, at the end. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By the way, um, a lot of translations, the NLT says, now, my dear brothers and sisters. Earlier translations say, now, my beloved. Can I just chase a rabbit for just a moment here? I think it's so wonderful that he can still say that. Corinth could well have been the most dysfunctional church that Paul was dealing with. Uh, you know, at the beginning, he addresses very forcefully the divisions in that church. He goes on to talk about this terrible sexual immorality that's going on in the church. He goes on and addresses that whole idol meets issue. He goes on and talks about the device of speaking in tongues. On and on. I mean, he's just one after the other having to deal with all this dysfunction in this one church of wacky people. But he closes it out toward the end saying, Now, my dear brothers and sisters... My beloved, it, it reminds me that there was hope for the church at Corinth, just like there's hope for the church at Brookwood and all of our dysfunction. So I just love that he says that. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, do you have believed, what does it say? In vain. He uses that phrase at the beginning and then later on at the end. And he says, don't let this be in vain. Don't let your faith be in vain. And he goes on to say, and here's why it doesn't have to be in vain. Christ has risen. And he offers his own explanations and arguments that are great. You know, he says, look at the witnesses out there who testify to the resurrection. You know, they testify. They're giving testimonies. The word for testify, testimony, in the Greek is martis. It's where we get the word martyr. What he is saying there is, look at those who witness to, who testify to the resurrection of Jesus at their own life's risk. He goes on to say, look at my life. I risk death every day. And he goes on to talk about, in a very helpful way, distinguishing between the spiritual resurrection we already experience when we give our lives to Christ, and then he talks about the physical re resurrection that we will have when we die. And he goes on with all that, and that's great. It's, it's sort of an apologetical sermon of sorts. You know, he, he didn't bother to add other things, but we could add other apologetical things that defend the resurrection of Jesus, the inability of, of the Roman and Jewish leaders to produce Jesus' corpse. They could have just pulled it out of the tomb. That would have been great. Jesus' own 
predictions about uh, his own resurrection. I mean, he talked about it. So he either was quite authentically who he said he was, or he was delusional. One or the other, take your pick. You can talk about the empty tomb. Uh, The empty tomb was presupposed by the earliest opponents of the resurrection, those who issued forth polemics, Uh, the Jewish polemicists who came along and tried to argue against the resurrection, every one of those that we have, every manuscript that we have, shows that all of those people who were enemies of, opponents of, adversarial debaters against the resurrection, presuppose that the tomb was empty. They acknowledge it. They admit it, that it was empty. And what do you do with that? There's the conversion of James, the brother of Jesus, who at first thought Jesus was nuts. He was the brother who was embarrassing And he becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem, really the most influential church in in the uh, early days. Or we could say the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. What a dramatic historical evidence right there. And it's Saul who becomes Paul who actually is writing this marvelous, marvelous chapter. But here I want us to go to the end of the chapter because he preaches the resurrection, says it's for real, and then he calls for a response. Let's go back to verse 58 one more time. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, what I love when it's talking about standing firm, being immovable, not letting anything move you, Paul exemplifies this better than anyone. I love it if you go a chapter further in 1 Corinthians 16, 7 through 9. He's kind of wrapping up the whole letter. And I just love what he says here. He says, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. You know, I'm going to be coming back, back through Corinth, and I really do hope to see you and just have some quality time. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. <laughs> I love that. He's saying, man, I'd love to come see you, but a great door is open here in Ephesus, and, and there's a lot of people who oppose me. This is great. This is a wonderful opportunity for me, so I've got to stay here. I've got a lot of enemies a lot of naysayers here. A lot of people threatening me. i got to stay here. This is great. <laughs> he trusts that his labor is not in vain. And he's saying, I'm going to stay here because this is more of a danger zone than where you are right now. Very, very impressive to say the least. He knows his work isn't in vain. I've got to come back to you. Do you and I think that way? <laughs> really? Do we live like a risen Lazarus on earth with that kind of bold confidence as we take our stand for Christ? Do we do that with fullness of confidence and courage? So our faith in the resurrection is not in vain. And also, secondly, our death is not in vain. We sang about that. Oh, death, where is your sting? Wonderful song, Christ is risen from the dead. Thomas Brooks once said, death has for its motto, I yield to none. That's true, we all die. Went on to say, death is the greatest monarch and the most ancient king of the world. Yeah, death's sort of powerful. But do we trust that death's death warrant has been signed due to Christ and his death and resurrection? And when Christ returns, just as we sang a moment ago, death will be dead. Death will be dead. And I love that wonderful passage, verses 54 through 57. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? We sang that just a moment ago. By the way, I love this verse. And I don't know if you know, Paul is remembering a marvelous, marvelous passage in Isaiah 25. Let's put that up. I think it's just a beautiful echo of this Old Testament passage talking about God. He will swallow up death forever, this long-anticipated prophet who becomes Jesus. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In other words, the Lord means that. And, and, he, and he goes on in this 1 Corinthians 15 piece to, to taunt death. Oh, death, where's your sting? Where is your victory? And you think about that. Is it, should we be taunting death? You know, some people risk death or dare death. Should we taunt death? I would say we're justified, at least for one reason. Death is an enemy. I love Disney movies. Okay, I'm going to go on, and go on record. I love Disney movies. But proper theology would tell you that, that death isn't all a part of this circle of life. You know, it's not that. I know that was lame, but it's not. Uh, death is the final enemy. Paul calls death the final enemy. John in Revelation calls death the final enemy. And it is an enemy. <laughs> we're not being honest if someone we love dies and we're just happy and dandy with it. No. Death has that painful, grievous power to separate us from people whom we love. And we're separated from them, albeit temporarily, if you're a follower. And not only that, death is an enemy, is evil, because oftentimes we see the suffering that leads up to someone's death, whether it's very brief or long and extended. That makes it evil because of the dehumanizing kind of impact death can lay upon us. It is an enemy. But Christ is victorious over that horrible final enemy. So we can, yeah, taunt death. Where's your sting? Where's your victory, O oh, death? <laughs> Paul had the gall to do that, and he's in a way saying we can too. You know, you can, even, you can even welcome it in a way, acknowledging its evil nature, and yet you can say, what did Paul say in Philippians? For me to live is Christ and to die is, fill in the blank, gain. It's gain. John Donne is a wonderful poet uh, from the 1600s also a pastor, and he lived through three waves of what was the Black Plague back then. In fact, he thought at one point that he was dying, and he went and read 1 Corinthians 15, and he thought, I need to write a sonnet about this, and I just love it. It's called Death Be Not Proud. Anybody familiar with this? I just love it, because it just kind of uh, just kind of goes after death. Death be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom you thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Love that. And that's just the beginning and the end of that sonnet. It's, it's, it's killer, I was going to say. that no, no pun intended there, but it's wonderful. That puts it very well, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. 
That's death's death warrant. That's the power of Jesus. You know, we lost a dear friend this past week in Jim, Jim Redinger. And um, it, it was very sudden and, and very tragic. And what a good man, you know. He, he was the head of Buffalo Rock, as many of you know, and, and just a good, good man. But let me just tell you, if Jim could speak to us today, he, he would say, Hey, folks, attention, death is dead, and I'm doing mighty fine. You know, theologians talk about the all, we're in the already but not yet, right? We're in the already but not yet. And we're stuck in the not yet. Yeah, the battle's won, but we're in the not yet. You know what? Jim gets to experience the already now. That's enviable. That's enviable. That's where he is. He is in the already. I got a wonderful text from Donna just a few days ago. She said, Jim is in his third day in heaven, and every day for him is perfect now. She's right on. It's exactly, exactly right. Because of Jesus, our death is no longer in vain. Thirdly, because of the resurrection, our work is not in vain. Let's go back to verse 58 again. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Don't let anything move you. Remain firm. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now, I love that, by the way. It's not saying, you know, let nothing move you. Uh, Stand firm. Not by holding fast and holding on tight, hunkering down. No, no. Stand firm and be immovable by moving. Get to work. That's what he's saying. Because if that's true, if this resurrection is true, then we can live like Lazarus, I'm quite confident, did after he was brought back to life. And we can make every moment count. Whatever time you have left, you can make it count. You know, every decision you make, make it in light of eternity because we're going to be there a lot longer than we are here. If you want to focus on the here and now, that's fine. But, but your thinking really needs to have an eternal trajectory as well because this here and now is here and then it's over. I really think we need to echo the wishes of David in his psalm when he said, O oh Lord, make permanent the works of my hands. Make permanent the works of my hands. Help me to make it count while I'm here. Uh, let's look at this one more time. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now, I want you to look at this final phrase. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Many, in many translations say your work and your labor are not in vain. I want to break that down with a special note here because I think this is important. And this anticipates what we're going to talk about next week when we start a new series on the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. The word for work, ergon, in the Greek. And the word for uh, your labor, uh, 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 human kapos. Those are singular, okay? Those are singular. It's not like different individual works we do, different jobs we have to do. It's broader. It's talking about your, generally the work that you do as a believer, generally the labor you do as a believer, and the your is plural. The your is plural. The work and the labor is singular, but the your is plural. What's it talking about there? Can we go back? I know I didn't. Uh, can we go back to the one before? Uh, God bless you. Okay, because you know that your labor as a church, your collective labor, your labor that you coordinate together as you gather as the body of Christ, your labor 
and the Lord is not in vain. Okay, keep, go ahead again. Thank you. Saying your, it's talking about the collective work of the church. It's talking about you know, us all working together as a united body, as a working unit, gathering together regularly to praise God, to coordinate our mission efforts, to gather together and say, how do we lead out? How do we act boldly? And we need to talk about this together, not individually. And can I just say, we have different gifts, we have different agendas, each of us does different jobs, but it's for the greater overall work of the kingdom, but in order to do that, as Scripture mandates, you have to go to church. I'm preaching to the choir, I'm well aware of that. Can you be someone who says, oh, I love Jesus, and I'm a Christian, I just don't see the need for church. I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Scripture begs to differ with you, my friend. We're going to talk about that next week. I'm not trying to recruit more people or make you feel guilty. We're not going to go back to the offering envelopes where you got to check that you were there that Sunday. But let me tell you, that perception is wrong. It's inaccurate. And again, the cool thing is you and I get to celebrate being this immovable body by getting out there on the move and doing mission work for the Lord of all things. What a gift that is. He's saying you, your labor, our labor collectively is not ever in vain. I did, when I heard about Jim Redinger, um, I had been reading some old uh, sermons uh, and one was by this Puritan pastor named Thomas Brooks, and he has some wonderful uh, uh, funeral orations that he offered at persons' funerals. And on June 28, 1651, this is over 365 years ago, at the funer- funeral of Mrs. Martha Randall, he preached on our verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and this is what he said as part of it. I just think it's beautiful. And I hope you can, you can follow along with me or just listen, but this is part of what he said in terms of making it count. See that you build upon nothing below Christ. See that you have a real interest in Christ. See that you die daily to sin, to the world, and to your own righteousness. See that conscience is always waking, speaking, and tender. See that Christ be your Lord and Master. See that all reckonings stand right between the Lord and your souls. See that you are fruitful, faithful, and watchful. Why? Well, here we go. Make an account. And then your dying day shall be to you as the day of harvest to the farmer, as the day of deliverance to the prisoner, as the day of coronation to the king, and as the day of marriage to the bride. Your dying day shall be a day of triumph and exaltation, a day of freedom and consolation, a day of rest and satisfaction. Then the Lord Jesus shall be as honey in the mouth, music in the ear, and a jubilee in the heart. Why? Because your labor for him was not in vain. Let's pray together. 
Lord, forgive us when we fail to realize that we are risen Lazaruses ourselves, brought back to newness of life, and because of that, we have reason to get out and get busy, to be immovable and stand firm by moving outward and taking stands for you. Forgive us, O God, when we have shied away for whatever reason, apathy, fear, concern about rejection, whatever it might be. Call us again to the marvelous task, the joyous task of standing up for you, for what you did for us when you stood up and exited that tomb. Our labors, our work are not in vain, O God. May we commit ourselves all the more to your bride, the church, and make things happen for your kingdom. Amen.